0: This message has a bit of an unusual title, Me, We, and the Bible, and the subtitle of it is what it means to be in the body of Christ. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll read our text for today. Again, the message is titled, Me, We, and the Bible, what it means to be in the body of Christ so the text says, beginning at verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read these words. For as the body is one and hath many members and all the members of that one body being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond, which you would know is a slave, whether we be slaves or we be free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, Where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. Me, we, and the Bible what it means to be in the body of Christ. And let me give you a thought here before I actually get started as to what was in my mind or in my heart when I'm meditating before the Lord and what I believe that the Lord is bringing to us. We have heard the expression for some time now, better together, which is a true statement. We understand that two are better than one. That's a biblical passage. Two are better than one and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If we were to look at that scripture which we're not, that's the title of the message. Me, we, and the Bible. Or you could put it in the Holy Spirit would work equally as well. Me, we, and the Bible. So I want to start with the last position first, the Bible. And do we really believe that God wrote it? Well, let me hasten to say, if you're saying, yes, God wrote it, then your behavior will give evidence of that belief, whether it's sincere and true, you truly believe that, or it's just an intellectual concept, or you understand what the response is supposed to be, obviously, in a Bible-teaching church, Did God write the Bible, amen, you know? But as you know, and I've told you this, I rarely listen to what people say. I just watch what they do. Perhaps I'll get onto this again a little later, but what integrity is, is that what you're saying you believe and what you're saying should be done and so on and so forth matches up what you actually do. That's integrity. For an example, the reason so many people have lost faith in politicians here in America is because they lack integrity. What they say and what they do does not match up. Interestingly, you can look at people and someone like Adolf Hitler, who what he said he believed and what he did matched up, as atrocious as all of that may be and is. In any case, I would be reluctant to call that integrity, but integrity is what you say you believe and how you behave. Did God write the Bible? And in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. All of it. So this problem has been developing for some time. I mean, minimally over the last 180 years. We could round it up to 200 years. But it's been around for longer than that. Louis Gasson was a Swiss theologian. And in 1841, he proposed this question. He wrote, first of all, I do not think that after we have come to know that Christianity is divine, there can be presented to our mind any question bearing more essentially on the vitality of our faith than this, does the Bible come from God? Is it altogether from God, meaning all of it? Or may it not be true, as some have maintained, that there occur in it maxims. Purely human statements, not exactly true. Exhibitions of vulgar ignorance. And keep in mind, this is 1841. Exhibitions of vulgar ignorance and ill-sustained reasoning. In a word, books or portions of books foreign to the interests of the faith, subject to the natural weakness of the writer's judgment and alloyed with error. Here we have a question that admits of no compromise a fundamental question, a question of life. It is the first that confronts you on opening the scriptures, and with it, your religion ought to commence. So simply put, Louis Gasson, writing in 1841, later the um, theologians Orr and B.B. Warfield, and then later on in 1940s, Louis Schaefer would write on this very same subject, Systematic theology, the whole counsel of God, that's the easiest way to understand what is systematic theology. The whole counsel of God, beginning at Genesis 1, ending in Revelation chapter 22. Do we believe that every verse, every word is given by God, which the Bible says it is, but do we believe that? And how do we prove that we believe that? It's how we act, how we behave, how we live. So Lewis Gasson was asking the question, do we really believe that God actually wrote the Bible? And he states, which is correct, that this is a fundamental question. Spurgeon would go on to talk about, in one of his sermons to his congregation, back almost around the same time, 19th century, that if you believe that God actually wrote the Bible, that it's inspired verbally, that means all the words are inspired, then when you memorize scripture, you need to be careful to memorize it word for word. You see, that's just good reasoning. But the question is a fundamental one. Did God write everything that's in here? And as Gasson stated, it is a question of life if indeed God wrote the Bible. And if he didn't, we need not to take meetings such as this one here too seriously because after all, there's many ways to heaven. But the Bible doesn't state that. And Jesus certainly left no ambiguity as to this fact. There's only one way. I am the way. There's only one. Jesus would go so far as to say Everyone who came before me were thieves and robbers. He said, but my sheep never listened to them. We get into these mysteries. Well, I'm not going to explain that to you today, but we get into these mysteries of election and so on. But it is a fundamental question. Did God actually write the Bible? So come back to this text of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We come to this conclusion that these words were written by God through the Apostle Paul, just like we have with every other scripture. All the authors, about 40 all together, were used of God's spirit to write his mind, his will, his command, his ways, and put them in and codify them in a book. If we believe that, we will respond accordingly, meaning we will comply. We will obey. We as Americans, I think, in particular, though I don't believe the rest of the planet is exempt because human nature is human nature. But I'll concentrate my remarks, or confine, rather, my remarks to us Americans. You see, we have been told and taught and experienced, in my case, I can say I've experienced it, this rugged individualism. And I do believe there's something good about that. The fact that you can come to America and you have opportunity to make something of your life. I don't necessarily mean in the Lord, just you can make something of your life. You can own businesses, you can buy land and build houses and so on. I do believe in that. However, this rugged individualism does not have a place in what is called the church. But we'll get into this. So if you believe that God actually wrote the Bible, as you say, then your behavior, your life, your thinking everything about you is going to comply. You're going to be in submission to this book. So we have me, the individual. Then we have we, the corporate body of Christ, which you know, I mean... It's more than just this local congregation, it's all over the world. And even extends into those that have passed into the heavenlies before us and those that will come after us. That's the body of Christ. And then we have the book. So I started with the book. And the book tells us here, we read it in 1 Corinthians 12, we'll come back to it, that just like the human body has various parts, here's a hand and here's a hand and there's a foot and there's a foot, and here are eyes and ears and tongue and so on and so on. But it's still just one physical body And the analogy given to us by God through the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, is that the church, the ecclesia, called out ones, are the same thing. Now we look around here in the sanctuary this morning, and we see many, many people, but we are not simply individuals. As it has pleased God, he has caused us to be part of one another, with Christ as the head, constituting his body. And so I want to start with the obvious. It does begin with the individual. John 3, 16, 17, 18. We're familiar with these verses, but I'm going to read them to you. Just to state the obvious. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3, 18. He, she, the individual that believes on him is not condemned. But he, she, that believeth not is condemned already. Because he, she, hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, it's a very simple principle. It all begins with one person. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You. Now, some of you know my testimony. I wasn't saved during the crusade. Some of you were. I wasn't saved in the local church assembly, and some of you were. I was saved in my bedroom. I'm 16 years old, and someone handed me a gospel tract on the boardwalk of Seaside Heights. My family and I were on vacation. I headed out to what it constitutes part amusement park and all types of other things that you find on a boardwalk, and this young girl, probably the same age as me, just stuck this in my hand while I was walking by. A chick chak This was your life. I remember sitting down that very night, reading through it, and I was a little concerned with what this little booklet had to say, and all the scriptures that went with it. Remember, I wasn't raised on the Bible, some of you were, and that's an advantage. This was new to me, this concept, that I was going to be held accountable at the end for my life, and that without receiving Christ as my personal savior, I would be lost forever. Interestingly, I intuitively understood it, I just didn't understand it intellectually. Kept it in my pocket, had it for years, Decided to write to the company and get all their samples. I came in a box and one by one just read through each one, reading the scriptures that were in there. And there was a bunch of them then and even more now that they've made. And then one day, you know, at the end of the booklet, it says, if you would like to receive Christ as your personal Savior, then you pray this prayer, sign your name and all of that on the track. And I remember getting down at the side of my bed and praying to receive Christ. And just again, as a little aside, I had a lot of curious notions about the Bible in those days. One was that I truly believed that I was the only person that knew this. Now, not my commitment to Christ, but I mean, as I was reading the Bible, keeping in mind I had never met a Christian that was actually born again. Well, (laughs) you can't be a Christian without being born again. I had never met a Christian, yet I was inside a denomination that went through the motions and talked about Jesus, what have you. But I had never had anybody tell me, you must be... Born again. I was raised in a denomination, baptized in a denomination. And back then, and maybe perhaps today, that was just simply good enough. Well, I'm a Catholic in those days. I didn't know. And to this day, let me testify to you that I'm very grateful that God saved me the way he saved me. I mean it, because God knows all of us individually, right? He knows our personalities. I was very grateful, still grateful, that God said, I'm going to reach out to you one-on-one. I'm going to explain some things to you one-on-one. I accepted Christ without being taught or told or meeting any Christian pastor or leader or anybody. So that when finally we went to a church that was preaching the Bible, and the pastor asked me at the end of the service, Are you born again? I said, Yes, I am. I had never been inside any other church other than the one I was raised in. But when he asked me, Was I born again? I knew it. I knew it. Because a couple, two years or so went by where I was just studying these tracts and just looking up passages. I was lost. I mean, the Bible was, was such a foreign book to me, but I was learning. You see, you must know if you're born again. You must know. And so what I'm trying to say here is the obvious. You can't just join a group of professing Christians, regardless of what they have over the door of their church building or on their website, You must know that you're born again by the Spirit of God. And when you are, the picture enlarges. It now becomes bigger than just yourself. With that in mind, let me just share with you again what may be obvious to you, but I know from 44 years of being a pastor that it's not always that obvious. That's apparent by the way people behave. That you are responsible for everything. Now, I don't mean your salvation, that's God's prerogative. But I mean that once you, as an individual, come to Christ, you are responsible for your thoughts. I'm not. You're responsible for your words. We're not. You're responsible for your behavior. And I want to illustrate this by pointing out to you some of the principles, one of the principles that is used by the Navy SEALs. And I'd like to just say that I think that the Navy SEALs have probably done the best job of advertising what they do more than any other special operators. In any case, that's mainly what we hear about today is Navy SEALs. And for me, I'm grateful that, you know, this knowledge is out there and you have all kinds of books. But one of the principles, and I want to read this to you from Dominic Mann's book, the title of which is Self-Discipline, How to Develop a Mindset, Mental Toughness, and Self-Discipline of a U.S. Navy SEAL. He writes these words. Principle number one, you are responsible for absolutely everything. The principle, there is no one else to blame. From Jocko Willink, who was himself a former US Navy SEAL. Everything is your fault. I would change the words, and I will for this message, but everything is your fault. It sounds terribly harsh. Heck, it's probably not even true. But that is the foundational attitude of a Navy SEAL. They take absolute responsibility for everything. There's no blaming, there's no complaining. This attitude is essential to dominating life and conquering your goals and any obstacles you meet like a Navy SEAL. The first step to working toward your goals is first accepting that the responsibility rests squarely on your shoulders and yours alone. In his book, Extreme Ownership, how US Navy SEALs lead and win, former Navy SEAL Jocko Willink writes the following. On any team, In any organization, all responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. Now we're talking about me. The leader must own everything in his or her world. There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. See, I've understood for a long time, and I tell people, usually in private, if something goes wrong in the church, I'm responsible. So maybe this will help you. I don't know why there's certain rules and regulations in this local church, because I know at the end of the day, I'm responsible for your behavior, because now we're coming into the concept of a team. Now, obviously, Christ is the leader with the capital L, but I'm the team leader as a pastor. And if something's, let's say, going wrong, I'm the one that's got to straighten it out. I can't stand up before you and say, hey, I'm just like you, because if I was just like you, I wouldn't be a leader. Now, I didn't just say I'm better than you. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I understand the principle of leadership, that if I am a leader and something's going wrong, that it's up to me, in this case, between me and the Lord, to say, Lord, what do I do, and so on. I understand that it lays on my desk. Wasn't it Truman that said the buck stops here? Everybody's passing the buck. You know, with him, it hurts, it's him. Then all of a sudden comes to the desk of, at least President Truman, and says, it stops right here. This is my job, my responsibility. I've got to straighten this out. So that's real leadership. And let me apply it to your home. If you're the leader in your home, everything is your responsibility. If you're the leader on the job, you're a boss on the job, everything is your responsibility. And let me give you a little clue about leadership. If your sole goal is to lead in such a way that everybody likes you, you will be a very ineffective leader and they will take advantage of you. And so you have to lead with a sense of a moral compass to do what's right at all times, regardless of the consequences, because as leader, you are responsible. And again, whether it's in your home or on your job or wherever you are in charge, it's your responsibility. And so Dominic Mann says that the actionable takeaway is this. Listen, in the past, the fact that you are responsible for almost everything in your life was obvious truth. People understood that. But in today's sue-happy, safe-space culture, shrugging off responsibility for something you did is the norm. And we see so much of that. You fell off a ladder, let's sue the company that made it. You stubbed your toe, let's sue the tiler. No, he says, that is a loser mindset. The way of the Navy SEAL is to take absolute responsibility for everything, even the things that are not their fault because they know what they are responsible for, is how they react to any given situation, and that's everything. What you need to do, what Navy SEALs do, is take ownership of absolutely everything. Now this is a principle of one section of the military, the elite special operating forces, not just Navy SEALs, but all the rest of them as well, Delta Force and so on. You are responsible. Let me just broaden this just a little bit, and we'll get into today's culture. Things go wrong in your life by decisions you have made. What was your parents? It was the government. And in some cases, and I see this more than you do, it was God himself. Now, let's start with that. In the mind of anyone with even the smallest bit of comprehension about God, how can it be God's fault I recently prayed a prayer just a couple of days ago over a situation. This was my approach to God. God, I'm asking for this here. It had to do with somebody else's issue, not my own. I truly don't know what is the best thing. This, that, I truly don't know, but I'm praying for this. Then I ended the prayer the way Jesus did. And I said, nevertheless, thy will be done and not mine. Because as was established a little while ago during prayer meeting, The Bible is clear that we don't even know how to pray as we ought to. So we're depending on the Holy Spirit for everything. When it gets down to your life, you are responsible for everything. Now, I can tell you, well, I can tell you as father, I can tell you as a leader in several capacities, but I'll stick with being a pastor. How often it has been said to me or about me, I left the church because of the pastor, Even though it's been my habit throughout the years to make anything that's truly a wrong of mine correct it, yet there are many, many times when I had nothing to do with that situation and someone is looking for some convenience to blame somebody, in this case it would be me. That's their excuse to go out and do whatever they want to do. I want you to know, as your pastor, if I make a mistake, I will readily admit it. I actually like to learn. Someone said, I'm just trying to remember who it was, doesn't come to my mind at the moment, but... They said that if you're not making mistakes, you're not making decisions. Meaning that to make decisions, we learn, basically learn, by trial and error. We learn by making mistakes once we've made a decision. I said, well, that didn't work out well. So you try it again. Sometimes it takes several efforts. With the scriptures, it's pretty simple. Jesus says, do this. Do this and live. Easy, no, but simple. Do this and live. And this is where we find out whether our belief that God actually wrote the Bible or not is best displayed. God says to pray. God says, read the word. God says to be courageous. God says a lot of things. And then let me turn it again, as I mentioned earlier. And then God says, now I want you to do this, do this. If you don't show up, who are you going to blame? Believe me, on a daily basis, I hear more people's stories than you'll ever hear in a lifetime. Every day, every day. I started out my day yesterday with three major issues that were addressed to me, and I hadn't even finished my coffee. But you see, I'm not grousing, because that's my calling in life. Do I like it? No, I prefer to have my coffee in peace. But that's not my calling. My calling is to be a leader. So I'm not going to shift the blame over to other people and so on and so forth. I realize that this is my responsibility. So I'm asking you, do you realize we're in the first position? You've been born again. You have the spirit of God and so on. Do you also realize that you're responsible for everything in your life? And if you don't, I'm happy to tell you that you are. You see, many, many churches today are looking to accommodate people. I was on the board of a television station years ago when it was just getting up off the ground, and these were good men, they really were, most of them. And the leader, the head of the station, was coming up at a pastor's meeting here, the board members, uh, reaching this area with the television station that was just going up. And he had an idea, he said, what if we just put out a survey to the people of the communities, what do they want to see on television? Christian television. So I raised my hand, because I'm always thinking, and I said, well, what if they want to see pornography? And I was being, purposely being hyperbolic and extending the situation. Then I went further. I said, now, what if we do this? What if we just turn the cameras on, turn the lights on, go on television, and preach the gospel? And then I said, no matter how it turns out, at least at the end of it, we know we have a reward with Christ. Same station, different meeting, pastors are sitting around, how are we going to raise money to take care of the television station? I said, how about if we pray? A leader of a local radio station was there and he started to pound on the table. Yeah, pray, pray, pray. But we're talking about money. Immediately the switch went off in my mind. I realized there's no communication here. This man has no appreciation for what God said in his word. And ultimately the TV station failed. Why did not we try it God's way? After all, we've tried it our way and it hasn't worked out too great. Think of all the denominations in the world today. And then we read 1 Corinthians, and it tells us that one says, I am of Apollos. The other says, I am of Peter, Cephas. The other one says, I'm not of Apollos or Cephas, I'm of Paul. And Paul says, you're all carnal. And that's what we have today. And it's always startled me that people who are truly committed to the Bible, people I consider to be true Christians, don't see the carnality of the fact that we will not recognize other people that are in the body of Christ worldwide. Now, some are not who profess to be Christians. I'm not talking about them. And I'm not talking about ecumenism. I'm just simply talking about people who are truly Christians, but they may be of a different persuasion, a little here, a little there, doctrinally, when the main doctrines of the Bible are not affected. You see, what has to happen in the days ahead, I am convinced, and this would be the value of this message at this moment, I am convinced we are truly going to need each other in very real and very practical ways. And we're seeing signs of it now. Many, many things are getting very difficult to find and buy. What's the reason behind all that? Well, we could examine it, but that's not the point for the moment. I believe that the storm that we're seeing now is going to grow worse. And my job is to make you here, this is the only unit, right, that I have, is to make you a cohesive unit that acts together in concert. All the gifts, all the talents, and so on, work together for the good of one body, And then the larger scale would be the body of Christ worldwide. Someone has once said, jokingly, that the chief job of the pastor is to keep the sheep from biting each other. Well, there is some truth to that. The grousing and the complaining and who don't get along with who and blah, blah, blah. But let me tell you something. Dig deep into the scriptures and examine your commitment to Christ. As we'll get to this as we do so frequently, when Jesus said to love one another, there was a reason for that because we're not naturally prone to love one another. Another little tidbit about leadership, as I mentioned this recently, the boss never knows what he's doing. But you do. (laughs) Having been a boss for a long, long time, when I'm around other bosses, I have a clear understanding of the dynamics. And sometimes I'm inclined to blame the boss on one issue, that whatever's going wrong in this place where we're at is ultimately his responsibility. Beyond that, I understand the dynamics. Everybody thinks the boss doesn't know what they're doing. Well, that's human nature. Should we, in our local churches all over the place, get bumper stickers? It's all about me. I'm here for me. And believe me, whether articulated or not, that is the attitude of many professing Christians. Let me share something else with you. I meet young people, but well, most of them are younger people, who say, well, we go to so-and-so because my children like it. Now, I know some of these churches, and I know some of their doctrine, I know some of their activities, and I don't say much because it's really not my place. I'm not their pastor but at what point in history has a child ever been able to lead an adult one of the things that we have with parenting and pastorate as well is that we want our children to love us so we will do what we can to accommodate children or accommodate people who come to the church to say in the end of this message i want you to really like me but you see i understand and you need to understand that it's not about whether you love me or not or like me or not, it's about doing the right thing. And in the hopes that down the road, children will grow up and see that their parents did the right thing, and sometimes that doesn't happen either, but at least you could put your head on the pillow at night, your conscience is clear, you did the right thing. And sometimes the double bonuses, especially with raising kids, is when they have their own kids. I call it God's great vengeance. I love listening to kids, young people say, oh, kids drive me crazy. And I just smile, really. They got two, we had five. Not only did we have five, but we raised five on a pastor's salary. And I don't make the kind of money these TV preachers make. We raised five children. I did three services on a Sunday. When we needed music, I played music, I sang, I prayed. 6 a.m. prayer meetings every day of the week. Then we had other activities, as some of you know, from the years past. My wife was heavily involved. I was, of course, the pastor, involved in everything. And then I'm listening to kids talk about, oh. And I just smile, and it's not because I'm being condescending. I just, it's God's vengeance. But I thank God that a lot of young people are prudent enough to know that their job is to raise their children properly, and after that, they're on their own. So let me say something to you as parents, and any pastors that are watching as well. Don't fall for that old trap where the kid manipulates you through, you don't love me. (laughs) Enough of that. And if you're just an average parent that did a good enough job, perfect, who does perfect? Nobody does perfect. But you did a good enough job. Let it satisfy you. Because maybe your adult child doesn't really have much appreciation of what you did for them. So be it. I remember a woman who happened to be a nurse whose child was 40-plus years old, drug addict for many, many years. And in order to help, I'll call him Little Johnny. Little Johnny's in his 40s. She, because he had multiple arrests and he had many incarcerations, to help her son would go cop his drugs for him. And when she was talking to me, I said, do you understand what you're doing? I mean, you could be arrested. I thought I was doing the right thing. I said, no, ma'am, you're not. You are enabling this man to probably kill himself. Copying his drugs. You see, somehow this softness that we have in America today has reached levels that are truly ridiculous. Copying drugs so you could help little Johnny who's in his 40s? No, it doesn't work like that. I'm just saying to you to comfort you. So I know some of you get it back from your kids that are grown, mom this, dad that. And as they say, you know, forget about it. <laughs> forget about it. Yeah, I said this to one of my children now that you have a child of your own. See if you could do better than me. Well, that was maybe a little carnal, but I don't retract it. Because Robert E. Lee said the same thing. One of his sons was complaining about Robert E. Lee, General Lee, and he said, if I have done bad, let him do better. That's the best way to prove it. I'll prove I'm a better pastor than you are. I'll go take a pastorate. I wish you would. Me, now we. So we had here in the scriptures, let's look at it again if your Bible is still open, For as the body is one and hath many members, you know, there's fingers and toes and eyes and ears and tongue and teeth and all of that. Then we have the organs, the heart, the lungs, digestive system, immune system, endocrine system. As the body is one and hath many members and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit, for the body is not one member but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not of the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not of the eye, or I am not the eye, am I not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them in one body, as it hath pleased him. And if you were all one member, where were the body? If everybody was a finger, that's not a body. But now there are many members, yet but one body. One mistake you must never make when it comes to we is to insist that everybody's in your gift and your talent. I have my own gifts and talents. I know my limitations. I know where I don't belong. I know where I've got to ask for help. On the other hand, in my case, i got several gifts and talents. I know where I belong. and know where my place is. And it's wrong to put other people in your position and say, you should be doing what I'm doing. No, 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 no. I don't know about you, but I don't walk on my hands. I walk on my feet. So my feet evidently know their position in the body. And then I don't grab things with my feet. I grab things with my hand. And my hand evidently knows its position. And you see, when you have feet and hands, eyes and ears working together for the common good, then the body is well. And when you don't, the body is not well. And this is what I wanted to say earlier. I'm not sure I finished the thought. In the days in which we're living, we're coming to a place now we're going to need each other. And we can't put it together at the last minute when these cataclysms of whatever we're facing, precisely, I don't know, but whatever we're facing come upon us. We've got to already have it in place that we're operating as one unit. Here's a hand, there's a foot, there's an eye, there's a nose and so on. And all these gifts and talents are working together in their proper place. Because the day is coming and we see it in the scriptures where they'll be knocking on the door. Give us of your oil. That's too late. If I give you my oil, I won't have any. We have to do it now. We have to get this concept now. You have to be operating in your gift and talent now, starting today, if you're not already. We're not handing out bumper stickers. It's all about me. It's not all about you. God has made this clear. It's about us. I love the word us. I love the word we Some years ago, I was sitting in my living room. At the time, we had a little sign there that said, Welcome. And as I was sitting there meditating, I was mentally separating the letters. And then it occurred to me that we is at the beginning of welcome, and me is at the end. And I thought to myself of the church that people will feel welcome when we is first and me is last. Me is still important. As I just pointed out, you have to be born again. But now it's we you ever seen the movie The Dirty Dozen, it's pretty much pointed out in that movie. You have these guys that are total individualists, criminals. Lee Marvin has the job of making them work as a team and he explains this to them. They fight, they get into trouble with each other and so on and so forth, but one day, they unite over a purpose which is not shaving because they were tired of cold water while the officers were shaving in warm water and they all refuse. And finally, Lee Marvin, who's a major, He sees he's found something that they united over, the fact that they will not shave. So he said, fine, you won't shave. And this began to bring them together. We don't have to have that explained to us. Christ is our common ground. And every me, every individual, in obedience to Christ, then affects we. It augments our individual strengths in Christ, and we become strong in the Lord. Two is better than one. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If you add more strands to that as you're having a rope, then it gets very, very difficult to break that rope. But take just a little piece of string, not so difficult. To separate the body or parts of the body, members of the body, isolate them as Satan wants to do, get you alone, be over here, all of that, you're weaker. Very weak, as a matter of fact. When we come together and we support each other and we pray for each other and we help each other and you use your gifts to help me and I use my gifts to help you, life is good. And we see the strength, but we're going to need each other in the days to come. So if you are a rugged individualist and insist on hanging on to that in Christ, be it known to you. You're outside the will of God. Eventually, there'll be some price to pay for that. For the rest of us, we're going to work on us and we as a team, or more appropriately, as the body of Christ. I don't know if you saw the movie Coach Carter. It's about a basketball coach just back in 1999, not that long ago. This is a true story. He takes over a basketball team in Richmond, California, depressed area, oppressed area. And so he comes in and he decides that he's going to make this team more than just a basketball team. He's going to teach them life lessons. So the first thing that he does when he becomes the coach is he makes them sign a contract. One of the standards was that they have to not only go to class, but they have to sit in the front seat and get a 2.3, which is not a very high standard, but you have to get at least a C average. Well, they groused about that. What's this got to do with basketball? And one of the star players quit. Well, eventually, one by one, the players signed the contract, gave in. They were in the front rows of the seat. Grades were coming up. And then this young man, who was one of the star players on the team, after a few incidents outside of school, he decided he wanted to get back on the team. And they gave him a shot. The coach gave him a shot, let him back on the team. At one point, one of the standards for this player, he had to do so many push ups, which he couldn't do. And so some of the other players got down, so I'll do 10 for him, and I'll do 10 for him. Their attitude was if one of us struggles, we all struggle. I was raised with a mentality, if you're my friend and you're in a fight, I'm automatically and I didn't have to think about it. That was it. It's we and us. So they all come and they sign the contracts and they're doing well. And now the basketball team is really excelling. They're undefeated, going to the championships. The coach finds out one night that the team went out to some wild party. We were supposed to be, you know, curfew and all that. Then he finds out that not all of them have been going to class. In the middle of an undefeated season, he locked the gym doors. See, I admire men like that. The politically oriented, not so much. I don't have any stomach for politics, which is exactly what the school and the school board tried to pull on him. You realize what you've just done? They forfeited a couple of games because they didn't show up because the gym is locked. Because the coach is saying, if you don't go to class like you said you wouldn't sign the contract, we're not playing ball. So they had a meeting, a board meeting, and this is how politics go in school, in church, and, of course, in our country. And they said, well, this is outrageous, and what's he doing to the community and all that? So two people voted for him to keep him as the coach, and the rest voted to boot him, and he said, it's fine, I'm going, I'm leaving. Here's what happened. When the players found out, from the guy that they didn't care for at the beginning, a true leader, a leader who's more interested in the players than he is in whether he's liked or disliked, they all refused to play. We want Coach Carter. They lost the very last game, but that's not really the point. The point is he taught them how to act as a unit and as a team, how to set standards for integrity, responsibility, and so on, respect. And one of them went on to play on an international level in basketball and still brings some of these men, they're now men, to tears to think about what they learned from Ken Carter, the coach. A real leader will bring out the best in you, insisting, do it this way, do it right, Ah, you're grouse. But in the end, you'll see when you're competing with others, you're rising to the best of your ability. And Christ has commanded us to not talk in terms of me and I, but we and us. You know, over the years, sometimes I'll have new people who show up, and some of you here are new, and they critique me. I'm okay with that. I really am. I had one person in my office some years ago. We have a bunch of questions. Clipboard. I don't mind the questions, I already told you that. I'll answer any question, uh, most any question. But it became like this, not an inquiry, but became an investigation. Yeah, I didn't like, what the lady says. I said, you know what, lady, I don't care what you like. I said it in more polite terms than that, but I don't care what you like, this is our church. You're here as a guest, that's what I told them. You're welcome to come back, you're welcome to stay. But if you don't like it, well, then go back where you came from, or go hunting, shopping, whatever you do. Why? Because I'm not a politician. I'm a leader, and I try to lead best I can based on what this book says. It's gotten me into a lot of hot water, but I've gotten used to that. It's called stress inoculation. And so that's just what it is. If you're going to be a leader, you're going to be a leader. You've got to take, well, the good with the bad. We have to get to the place where we understand it's not me. It's us. It's we. And we must do our best to make sure we're helping one another. I think I better alert you to this right now. I'm not changing my mind about this. When you have a problem, a personal problem, that's different. That's not what I'm talking about, helping you out with a personal problem. When you're always complaining, bomb, bomb, being this one, that one. See, this is why, and I say this openly. In my life, some people really, really like me. And some people really, really don't like me. And for me, I'm good. I'm good. At least I know where I stand. Nobody ever comes up to my face and tells me, I don't like you. But they have other ways of saying it. I just saw somebody yesterday who, for years, has not liked me because I made a decision when they were in this church, him and his family. That was a very difficult decision, it really was. I knew the price I was going to pay. He's very popular in the town. I didn't have the opportunity to walk over, but I was going to walk over and say, I don't wait to be attacked. So I get there first. Hey, how's it going? I expected a typical political talk, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm not going to go hanging my head around the community because someone's talking about me. Because truly, I don't care. Not as long as my conscience is clear. Not as long as I can say I lined up my life and my words and my actions and my deeds and my decisions as best I understand the Bible. And believe me, I have a pretty good understanding of it by now. That's sufficient. And that's what we need to do. Start speaking in terms of we and us, not me and I and all that. That's got to go. Because we just read scriptures written by God that says you are part of the body if indeed you're actually part of the body. You can come in here because you like Pastor Ray's personality or you like whatever you like. But I'm saying if you're part of the body, we've got some hard work to do. Let me give it to you. Well, Before I do that, let me just give you this here. This is important. There was a psychiatrist who lived in the 20th century. He was very, very successful. Not Christian, but very, very successful in working with psychotic patients and getting them cured. I mean, cured, cured. And he used to tell his patients about individualism versus a group. When you're part of a group, you rise up to a different standard. Me, we, the Bible. See, the Bible's outside all of us. And we must rise to what God has said in this book. To illustrate, Dr. Abraham Lowe wrote these words about what were and still are mental patients. He wrote these words. To the romantic and intellectual person, the goodwill of the group means little. Group standards, Lowe wrote, are odious restrictions to their craving for individualistic expression. Now, that's a psychiatrist speaking, but it has great application for our lives as well. In the Pentecostal church, we have often had, over so many years, the prophet. I don't mean the one at the pulpit either, which is also questionable. I mean the one that came in the door. God told me to tell you. Have you any idea how many times I've heard that? And I always say, why didn't he tell me? Is there a presumption that I'm not in a good relationship with the Lord? That Here's the general. Let's say I'm the colonel, but he's telling the private. Go tell the colonel. We talk every day. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying here that I don't have things to learn from other people. I do. It doesn't matter who they are. I try to learn from everybody. But this God told me. So you coming along and God told you to say something. Always remember that in this church, when God told you to say something, my obligation is to judge it publicly. Okay. we all good. God told me to tell you, okay? God's telling me to tell you. Well, here we go. We'll find out in the end. Let me say this to you as we finish. What is the evidence of salvation? Baptists born and Baptist bred, I'll be Baptist living and Baptist dead? Who thought that up? And every church has some type of maxim similar to that. Let me tell you what the evidence of salvation is it's obedience to Christ. 1 John 2, 3, the Apostle John writes, well, the Holy Spirit writes, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 3, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. I would you like to have a prayer life like that? Yeah. Well, it's in the Bible. We're supposed to. Yeah. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight, it may not be pleasing in man's sight, but it's pleasing in God's sight. 1 John 5, 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Jesus in John 14:21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, which means you do them. He it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Same chapter of 14, gospel according to John, verse 24. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which he hears not mine, but the Father's which sent me. So the key to giving evidence of a life that's designed, your life is designed, my life is designed, that others would glorify God or inspire them. And the evidence is found in our compliance and our obedience As you leave here today, is it me or is it we? And more than just saying, oh, we, 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 do you prove it with your behavior? Are you using your gifts and talents? Are you staying away from the things God told you to stay away from? Sins of commission, sins of omission, but it's still sin. Or will we, and this is my prayer, will we be able to have a cohesive group? And I want to say something to you. I do pray that God fills up all, every seat. There's still a few empty. But I'm not concerned about being the pastor of the decade. I have one object in mind, that my life glorifies God. I have one object in mind, that if I wake up at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm the same person as I am right now in the pulpit. With all my warts and flaws, but my integrity is intact. And that's what you need, to have the same aim. That your integrity is intact. That your walk and your talk are the same. And I'm narrowing it down to this commandment here. Love one another. How many of you find it difficult to love other Christians? How many of you find it easy to love other Christians? And if you do, you do? Well, okay. Then I may skip what I was about to say, because I know that you're a true man of God. But I've got to say this anyway. If you're finding it easy to love other Christians, I'll modify it a bit. You haven't met some of the Christians I've met. They don't make it easy. I stood next to a man. I'm telling you, it was less distance, half the distance between me and this front row right here. He didn't acknowledge me. He's a pastor. He didn't look at me. Do I know him? Yeah, for over 25 years. Now, me, in my natural person, since we were alone, I wanted to say seriously and make an issue. But I said, no, I, you know, I'm just going to take the high road. If that's how he wants to be, that's his decision. My decision, at least at that moment, take the high road, leave him alone. Because it ain't going to affect my day one way or the other, whether he does say hi or doesn't say hi. But that's on him. And this man had done a lot of damage to me as well. I've had a lot of people do a lot of damage to me. But you remember the weebles? Weebles wobble, but we don't fall down. And like a cork, you just keep bouncing to the top. If you keep doing the right thing and you never give in and you never quit and you never give up, you'll keep bouncing back up to the top. So whatever is in his mind or his heart, I don't know. Do I pray? Well, sure, yeah. I still include him in my prayers. But that morning, he decided it was about this distance here. He just looked straight ahead, went about his business over here, didn't acknowledge me, didn't look. I even said something to him, like, you know, hey, good morning. Didn't know you were here. That's what I said. And so if you love Christians and it's really easy for you, you have not, I'll introduce you to some of the Christians I've met. <laughs> and then we'll see. It's not that easy because we're human Winket, qui, si, wink it. He conquers who conquers himself. Publius Sirius, you know him, good old Publius. Before the birth of Christ, Publius Sirius coined an expression, this is a bit of a truncated part of it. Wink it, qui, si, wink it. He conquers who conquers himself. And it's a biblical principle. It's in Proverbs. He conquers who conquers himself. That is the one obstacle that we have to overcome ourselves to overcome your own failings and your own weaknesses and your own shortcomings as I started out this message without blaming everybody around you. Because the fact of the matter is they may influence you like I could have went on my ear for a long time about this character the other day, but I just dismiss it. Why would I let that ruin my day, my week, whatever? That's on him. I am responsible for my thoughts, my words, my deeds, that's it. And then, of course, in the ministry you help others, but he conquers who conquers himself. Wink it, qu- say wink it. I'll finish with this. Listen to this. This is an anonymous, but it's good. Where our captain bids us go, tis not ours to murmur, no. He that gives the sword and shield chooses to the battlefield where we are to fight the foe. And I give this to you because so many Christians are looking for this, again, this conspiracy and this and that and the other thing. Conspiracies have been around from the beginning of time. Yes, we are fighting certain enemies, but we must never forget that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. Well, how do you know that? (laughs) It's in the book. You can put names on these people. Well, they have names. Caesar. Nero. All of these Caesars, or some of them, heavily persecuted the church. Not all of them did. The government. Now, quickly, in America, let's not forget that we are the government. And we're getting the government we deserve. said. well, we vote. How's that been going for you? Because our politicians lack integrity. Worse, so do the pastors. And that's where the change has gotta come. We, we gotta change. So as we prayed earlier, God will hear us and send a third great awakening and shake the nation because only he can spin us. And that is what we need to do. It starts with me and then it goes to we and we live that way and we will live that way, by the way, for eternity. Or do you plan on going to heaven alone? I'm going to heaven, but I don't want to see anybody. Well, if you find yourself alone, you're not in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we have to say it honestly in so many ways. We just accepted the spirit of the world and brought it to the church. Garnished it, embellished it with some scripture verses and said, yeah, that's just me, you know, that's just me never rising above the fact that we're not to be accenting me and I, but we and us. Oh, God, help us in this hour to come together in spirit and truth. One baptism, one church, one body, one spirit, one master, one shepherd, one Lord. And not just here, obviously, in this local congregation, but all over the world. Somebody watching overseas that we would understand that these are our brothers and sisters whom we never met and probably never will meet this side of eternity, but we are one. God, we pray in Jesus' mighty name that we would be united over the scriptures, the Bible, and be in compliance. Oh God, we bless you and we praise you and we thank you for truly you are great and greatly to be praised. I pray, God, time for truth and wherever else the church meets in buildings and huts and open fields, that the people that come can find rest for their souls that the Christian Sabbath of Sunday would bring a rest to the spirit, the soul, and the body. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, help us, God. We need you, and we need you every hour. We bless you, and we praise you, and we thank you for all these things. So, Father, the end of another service, not the end of the Lord's Day, but the end of another time together. Help us, God, during the week to be compliant to the two greatest commandments, love the Lord with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. And the second, which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Continually remind us of these principles, we pray. In Jesus' my name, can you say amen this morning? Amen. amen.